0: To systematically we are doing our apocalypse editions right now we're pumping them out fast and furious and we're so glad you're here with us today i'm very excited we but have like not like
1: with with us because you know well, distance. no 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 distance
0: uh that's robin she's here digitally with me with me in through the media of digital communications technology uh and we you know who's back guess who's back back again it's Brian. brian's back that's yeah, the heck sure is
2: <laughs> Tell a friend. <laughs> all
0: right. So um, we, we don't have Ryan Hemmer, which is a sad thing for us, but uh, that dude's got a lot going on right now. So um, he gets a, a dispensation. Uh, so Ryan, we miss you. We love you. Um, good luck with all the things. We are going to get back on the horse here, and we're going to do what we always do, which is talk about the work of Bernard Lonergan. Uh, I. Those of us who come from a Protestant background uh, sometimes have a habit when we first encounter Lonergan and we learn about his notion of self-transcendence, or we learn about his cognitional theory and about uh, the reality of knowledge and self-knowledge and stuff. Uh, we can have a tendency to think this guy's a bit a, a little optimistic, right? There's a kind of uh, borderline kind of Pelagian Catholicness going on here. Uh, if you have certain certain Protestant or evangelical or Reformed particular. Uh, priors, you can get that vibe when you bump into Bernie. And what you might, if you keep reading, what you might find is that Lonergan inherits from Thomas Aquinas uh, a, a fairly significant moral pessimism about human beings individually and also in groups. And that comes through again and again in his writing. He has various different descriptions of what he'll call decline. Um, of the various ways in which things can fall apart both quickly and also slowly. And today, uh, in an effort to, um, I don't know, accompany our collective social anxiety, we're going to take a little tour through a number of these passages um, to look at how Lonergan talks about the sort of structure and dynamics of
3: decline, both uh, individual and social and communal and cultural, etc., etc. But first,
0: Robin, in our last episode, I declared you our Chief Frivolity Officer. I'm going to throw it to you. What are we doing this morning?
1: Well, um, today we're going to have some pretty predictable uh, frivolity. It's going to be apocalypse focused. That's the predictable part. Nice. And now for the challenging part. Each of you is going to name and very briefly explain why. First, you're going to name what is just the best apocalypse movie. Okay. Okay. And the second is, what is your favorite apocalypse movie? Because I think all of us, except maybe Brian and his purity of heart. Um, fi- <laughs> I, I don't know which Brian
2: you're talking about. But- <laughs> Specifically, the
1: purity of his film loving heart. The rest oh, of us like okay. trashy movies. Purity so like of heart is you. to
0: will one apocalypse movie.
1: So I want to know first what's the best apocalypse movie and why. But then I want to know what's your favorite apocalypse movie. And why
0: those are both those are both excellent questions, and yeah, I appreciate a, the
2: distinction That's an intense distinction mm-hmm.
1: yeah right who's who's ready to go first
2: I'm ready to rock um, if you take mine John i'm gonna I, I'm almost you, certain you I, there's,
0: because the answer to the first question is to my mind obvious because the best apocalypse movie is children of men that's um, a good choice like it's both impeccably made uh, the vision of the near future, particularly for those of us who are uh, old millennials, is uh, like an uncanny glimpse, glimpse at our middle age, But um, both the kind of slow roll of that kind of apocalypse. So if, if you're not familiar with Children of Men, uh, you should check it out. But the idea is human beings have stopped being able to procreate. Uh, and so there's a kind of generation that's living its way into its own extinction. Um, and it takes, like I said, it takes place like maybe 30 years in the future from when it was released. And um, it's Alfonso Cuaron, I believe. And there's, yeah. some, there's some amazing, amazing camera work in it. There's some great performances. Uh, one of my favorites is Michael Caine is in it. Oh, as, so good. Oof. As this kind of like pothead friend of, um, of the main Clive character on. played by Clive Owen. Yeah. Uh, that movie is, is real good. It's got a bunch of super long single take shots with a bunch of camera movement. Um, and I, I don't know, I dig it I think, it's, uh, I think it's probably the best one
3: However, it is not my favorite um, I think I think my favorite is This is actually a
0: harder question But I, the one that came to mind immediately And so I'm going to go with my gut
2: Was uh, World War Z With Brad Pitt My uh, parents told me they were watching that Last night when I called them gluttons for punishment i know yeah i was like damn staring
0: into the abyss (laughs) yeah um first of all in that movie brad pitt's hair is like like not quite shoulder length and beautiful uh so you can just stare at that the whole movie um it's got some genuinely harrowing uh (laughs) moments it's based on an amazing book by max brooks uh who if you don't know is the progeny of uh mel brooks uh, and who has also made something of of a career doing like speculative fiction about all kinds of security issues, and will he'll we'll, we'll, like lecture uh, at Annapolis and things like that? So yeah, that one's I think that one's my favorite. the The scene where the zombie disease spreads on the airplane is gut wrenching. Um, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a good one. It doesn't. I have to say, it doesn't totally stick the landing for me. The yeah, final it's scene too quick. Yeah. yeah, the final scene in the in the like. CDC Center or whatever um, doesn't doesn't have the same kind of oomph that the rest of the movie has, but but otherwise I got to go that one. That one's think, my
3: favorite.
2: All right, I guess I'll go next. Uh, I you, you added a new wrinkle with the zombie movie genre because I would Twenty Eight Days Later would be a fun one to talk about. Um, I, uh, I I think the best apocalypse movie because it's the I, I, I can't really talk about why without spoiling the ending, but I think it puts a solid punctuation mark on the idea of apocalypse is uh, melancholia. It's, it's an incredible commentary on depression in general. It's a Lars von Trier movie. I'd, I'd say it's pretty easily his best, um, in my opinion. It's it, Kirsten Dunst is the lead, and the movie's sort of told in two uh, in the first, she's uh, extremely depressed. She's very clearly got profound bouts of uh, clinical depression. And she's getting married, but kind of just wants to die. And her sister is trying to comfort her. She's the sort of more, uh, I guess, classically, quote unquote, "together" of the two sisters, who's the, the inverse of Kristen Dunst's character. And then this planet appears in the night sky and. It looks like it may or may not be on a collision course with Earth, and the emergence of that planet sort of inverts the roles of the sisters. So in the second half, uh, Kristen Dunn's character sort of starts to just become okay, and her psyche's integrated in this weird, uh, weird way with the, the intertwined fates of uh, this, this planet that appeared out of nowhere and the Earth, which sure seems like it's about to get hit by this planet. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting commentary, like I said, on depression. Uh, it's also, it's a gorgeous film. It's stunning. The, the final sequence is about as devastating and about as beautiful as anything I can think of. Um, so I, I, would, I would say in terms of <laughs> it's, its bleakness, that's, that's probably the most definitive apocalypse movie for my money. Um, I, going in the exact opposite direction uh, and Robin, I I appreciate you talking about my purity of heart with film, but you should know that I I watched Hobbs and Shaw the other day. So I have, I I don't, I don't just watch art film. Um, I actually really, really liked it. It was, it was bananas. It was the weirdest movie I've ever seen. Um, But uh, when they go to Samoa, the world, that's an apocalypse unto itself. But I I would, uh, I'd actually say my favorite is Roland Emmerich's The Day After Tomorrow. Because I, I, I've probably seen it 50 times like for whatever <laughs> weird reason. I, I, I watched it at the right age. I was like 12 or 13 or something the first time I watched it, and I had a massive crush on Emmy Rossum. And I really, what? I've always, I've whoopsed amongst. Yeah, that's I've I've always I, I've liked Jake Gyllenhaal as an actor because of the, that, that was my introduction to him, and I was like. I like this guy. He's, Wait, he seems did like he's you, a dude. Did you see The Day
0: After Tomorrow before you saw Donnie Darko? Donnie Darko?
2: Yeah. I, uh, oh. I, I would have been like 13 or 14 Donnie Darko. That explains, a, that explains
0: Darko. a lot about you, actually. Yeah.
2: I don't yeah. know what. <laughs>
0: it's, uh, I just feel like yeah. that would have an effect on your psyche to like, get those out of order.
2: Yeah. It's, I, for whatever reason, it, Dennis Quaid, and it, it's probably because In Good Company is one of my favorite movies. Dennis Quaid really reminds me of my dad. And so that, there, there are all kinds of resonances that I'm sure explain a lot about yeah, psychologically. Yeah, I'm going
0: to need you to lay down on that couch right there and we're going to work through this because there's a lot going on.
2: Yeah, I, I should probably just stop now. But no, they're, they're, the physics of that movie are absolutely bananas, almost as bananas as Hobbs and Shaw. Like the sequence where <laughs> they, they, they outrun the cold and get inside in the library. It's absurd, but it, it's a good popcorn. Sort of the world is exploding. Excellent.
3: All right, well, it's at least to you, me. Riva.
1: Well, I mean, you already took Children of Men, so um, I'm not really going to argue on the best one. However, in a very different vein than like kind of, you know, subtle, incredibly moving social commentary type ones, I'm going to say like another just outstanding apocalypse movie is Mad Max Fury Road.
0: Oh, uh, this so is true. Good. So, so like,
3: good.
1: Like what makes it a great mo- Like, movie is – almost entirely different than what makes melancholia or children of men great films um but it's just like i mean the set the set design like especially like the the vehicles and that sort of stuff the fact that they just made them and they're not especially man cgi does not age well guys i'm even watching movies from five years ago it's not that nice Um, also when they reduce the streaming quality on Netflix, you're just like, yeah, CGI doesn't hold up, but Mad Max Fury Road holds up.
3: Absolutely. So I'm going to say like that, just
1: like great apocalypse movies. Yes. In terms of my favorite though, I have discovered something about myself. If the world doesn't actually end at the end of an apocalypse movie, I'm vaguely disappointed by it. (laughs) Therefore, and spoiler alert, if you don't know what, want to know. The watch movies actually have an end. Turn your, turn your little uh, sound off I'm, right now. I may have
2: already talked about one of them. But, um, uh,
1: but yeah. At World's End? Such a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Seeking a Friend at the End of the... What is it? Seeking a Friend at the End of the Earth or End of the Universe? The uh, Steve... Uh, yeah, Keira, uh, Knightley. Keira
2: Knightley and Steve Carell.
1: It's so... It's a uh, sweet a, movie. It's yeah. so sweet. Yeah. It's really sweet and lovely and it's just about the kind of mundane... You know, as opposed to Mad Max, which is just like insane, like taking a friend at the end of the world is just pretty mundane and really sweet and beautiful. But also the world ends, which is great. Yeah. It's not like everyone just like is dealing with it, but then everything turns out to be fine, which is actually most apocalypse movies.
0: No, accurate.
1: Um, and same with World's End. It's just like, yeah, I mean, actually the end of the world. So, um, when it comes to favorites, I've just found yeah. If the world doesn't end, I'm vaguely disappointed by an apocalypse film. So all my favorites are the ones where I find that sensible. End of everything. I think that's a yeah.
0: that's a that's a good that's
3: a that's a hill to die on. Literally
0: so for, for the
1: whole world, actually. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
3: yeah. Oh, we did it! Yay!
2: Okay, we, we solved everything. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Yeah, and,
0: and I'm just going to spend the rest of the day thinking of apocalypse movies. I should have said instead for my yeah. favorite one,
3: but it's all right. Maybe that's we'll
0: do what, an. That's what episode. Twitter's
1: for.
3: That's true. Hey, speaking of Robin, yeah, it's time.
2: Yeah, I'm I've been using up. it a lot lately. Yeah,
0: I'm on there a whole bunch uh, for like I don't know if it's for sanity or just like nar- just to be like narcotized for a little while or what. But uh, we need we need Robin on there. The takes are too good, Robin. You can't just, you can't hoard them to yourself. They can't just, they can't just live in our uh, group chat.
2: I agree. I feel like 80% of my Twitter interactions involve John heaps in one way or another. So they might as well involve Robin too. Yeah. Get in there.
1: I, Although like, I just don't know if Twitter's ready for no Twitter Robin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, it's ready. We're ready. All it's
0: right. time.
1: Well, I'll, I'll think about it.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, tweet at me if you want me to join Twitter.
0: <laughs> I'll make a poll. So, yeah. That's that's a good idea, actually. All right, so um, so I'm going to start with
3: uh, well let me let me give a little bit of a little bit of framing. So, uh, Lonergan takes what
0: in um, Grace and Freedom he talks about the theorem of the states of man. Uh, he takes that sort of medieval theorem, which is to say, sort of the, the theorem that there are these four, that traditionally there's four states. Um, there's the the the, the I'm gonna forget how how articul- how he articulates them, but there's essentially there's there's the um, prelapsarian state, there's the fallen state, there's um, there's sort of the the redeemed state this side of the eschaton, and then there's the perfect redemption on the, with that comes with the parousia and the eschaton and stuff. Um, and he he takes this and he 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 adapts it to think uh, rather than sort of. In the uh, substantial states, the terms in terms of the substantial states that the medieval theorem uses. And he tries to think about it uh, in terms of history, in terms of the dynamics of history. And he uses a, a, because he's Lonergan and and a math nerd, he uses a calculus metaphor. And so he talks about the differentials of the good. Uh, And the differentials of the good are progress, decline, and redemption. Or sometimes it's progress, sin, and redemption. And we'll talk about it in both terms today. Um, and what he's trying to do in terms of talking about them as differentials, which is that they're, um, they are the, the variable that gives rise to the, to the sort of trend in variation. Um, and so there's various ways in which communities and cultures and individuals develop and progress. Uh, but the trend of development is nonetheless real. And so there's something which explains it. So he identifies the principles of progress. Uh, later, he'll talk about those principles in terms of authenticity, right? Being attentive, intelligent, reasonable, responsible. Uh, and then decline is the uh, the breakdown of development of progress, uh, and it results from inattention, stupidity, irrationality, irresponsibility.
1: John, before we dive more into decline, can you say a few words about how Lonergan's idea of progress? Because I think when we use the word progress now, we kind of always think about kind of the Enlightenment ideas yeah. of of, pro- of progress. Can you say they a little go bit? All
2: day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so
0: for for Lonergan, so. Um, a lot there's a, a line that kind of blows by at the beginning of insight but that i always make a big deal out of which is um you know against the objection of all the differences in culture and historical moment and all that kind of stuff um that that you know the project of doing some kind of normative either metaphysics or ethics or whatever it is um sort of shatters on the, uh, shatters on the rocks of um, historical difference. And Ornigan says, that doesn't really follow um, because what what all these variations suggest is that uh, there's some variable. And so what's the thing, if you have these processes that are in which these variations are being generated, um, you know, variations in culture, variations in uh, social order, variations in um, sort of styles of being a person, we could even say, right? Um, well, we can reasonably ask, what's the variable giving rise to these variations? Uh, and so for, for Lonergan, the, what he identifies as the variable that gives rise to them is the sort of, cog, is cognitional structure, is um, the, the autonomy, uh, the, the sort of internal norm of cognitional structure that coming to understand, coming to understand correctly, and then acting um, in light of uh, in light of one's understanding, and for the sake of values that one is able to discern through one's feelings, um, that whatever cultural moment you may be in, right, um, following the no- the sort of intrinsic norm of one's cognitional structure is the thing that gives rise to to progress, A- and that materially speaking or concretely speaking, um, progress is just whatever results from adherence to that norm. Uh, so this would be distinguished from sort of enlightenment notions of progress. Um, you know, the example I always use is, uh, the English show up on the, in Australia and they see Aboriginal peoples and they go, uh, well, unlike in North America, where indigenous people uh, have villages and do farming and stuff, these people don't do any of that stuff. Um, so they clearly are, uh, you know, undeveloped as a people. In fact, they're so undeveloped that for legal purposes, we're not even going to recognize them as person. So we're going to declare this terra nullius. And in order to acquire the land, well, in, in New England, we acquired it through trade because they were, you know, primitive in terms of their civilization, quote unquote, but nonetheless somewhat civilized. Here, no civilization, so we can just take it, right? We don't even have to trade with these not yet
3: people, basically. Um, and so that kind of... Um, that use of kind of external, uh, uh, sort of uh,
0: classical, uh, I'm getting all my Lonergan notions tangled up now, um, but that, that kind of, using those kinds of material markers for progress, uh, the kind of identification of one culture and one civilization with development, with progress, uh, that is driving colonialism, not what Lonergan's talking about when he talks about progress. Um, his, his theory of progress is not about making one, one set of variations, the standard for all the others, but rather about trying to discern what the variable is that gives rise to the variation. Is that enough on that?
3: Maybe.
1: Yeah, I think that's helpful, Dan.
0: Uh, you have to understand that Robin is wearing a silly crab hat with very wobbly. I can, I can
2: confirm, yeah.
0: Crab claws, uh, and so whenever <laughs> she, <whittling> now. <laughs> whenever she nods affirmatively, the little crab claws waggle at me. Uh,
1: it's been it, a tough week, you guys. Like, it just. <laughs> Tough weeks need crab hats. No, Everyone it's, knows it's,
0: this, just like it says in the Bible.
2: It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Jesus right it's there. It's boosting that's, my
0: spirits. It's in the Sermon on the Mount somewhere. I'm pretty yeah, sure a direct I'm, quote. I'm Catholic now, so I don't remember what the Bible says.
1: <laughs> Bless are they who wear crab hats for they will bring much mirth to other people.
0: That's I'm, I think that's it. It could be right. All right. Um, Ann Carpenter is going to get mad at me for making that Catholic Bible joke as well. She should. <laughs> So in any case, Lonergan develops this kind of this theory of historical process um, where you have these three different three differentials. You have so progress, uh, decline, right, which is the sort of objective situation generated by failures of attention, intelligence, reasonableness and responsibility. And then on the other side of that, which we're uh, sorry, everybody, we're just not really going to talk about today is redemption, which is uh, the cooperation of. Human consciousness, with God, with the offer of God's grace, to bring out of the absurdity and stupidity and evil uh, of the
3: situation generated by decline, the variable of decline, the differential of of decline, um, to bring out the good, to bring out renewed development, renewed progress, uh,
0: to to bring about recovery from the. Disaster we've made of ourselves. Today, uh, we're going to focus on decline. Like I said, uh, and we've got a bunch of passages from Lonergan all lined up, and we're going to read them and gloss them, and uh, you know, we'll see we'll see where this takes us. But I'm going to read a to start us off. I'm going to read a, a pretty a pretty famous one. People, one that people have probably heard before. Um, And it's from Method and Theology, so one of Lonergan's more famous texts. It's from the chapter on the human good. It's from the section in the chapter on the human good. That's chapter two. It's in the section on progress and decline. And uh, he's been talking about the way in which biases, uh, egoisms of individuals and groups and
3: so on, uh, can generate decline. Now he's going to press forward. Decline, he writes, has a still deeper level.
0: Not only does it compromise and distort progress, not only do inattention, obtuseness, unreasonableness, irresponsibility produce objectively absurd situations, not only do ideologies corrupt minds, but compromise and distortion discredit progress. Objectively absurd situations do not yield to treatment. Corrupt minds have a flair for picking the mistaken solution and insisting that it alone is intelligent, reasonable, good, Imperceptibly, the corruption spreads from the harsh sphere of material advantage and power to the mass media, the stylish journals, the literary movements, the educational process, the reigning philosophies. A civilization in decline digs its own grave with a relentless consistency. It cannot be argued out of its self-destructive ways for argument as a theoretical major premise. Theoretical premises are asked to conform to matters of fact and the fact of the situation produced by decline more and more are the absurdities that proceed from inattention, oversight,
3: unreasonableness, and irresponsibility. So that's Hardness. fun, right? right? I
1: was going to say, I don't even think <laughs> no my crab hat can reach us out <laughs> of the depression we've just sunk into. Also, was Lonergan watching the news like in the last few days? Because.
0: He, well, he,
1: it sounds like a commentary
0: no it is it's timely right um yeah. which is upsetting i mean one thing that has to be borne in mind is that his his other very famous book insight emerged out of his experience of watching fascism take over italy right yep he was doing his doctoral work uh in rome and he had to skedaddle uh, when the Axis powers and... That's
1: the technical term.
0: <laughs> That's the technical term. Uh, when the Axis powers and, and England declared war on each other, because he's Canadian, he's a subject of the Queen, um, and so was suddenly not very welcome in Rome, and so he had to get on a boat back to Canada. Uh, but but between, but, but prior to that, rather, you know, he watched the the, the stupidity and the evil of Italian fascism swell up in that society. And, um, and he watched people support things they didn't understand, not just because they failed to understand it, but because it in itself is unintelligible, um, because it was just kind of brute grasping for power, um, defending itself in uh, only the sort of most uh,
3: thinly you know, rationalizing terms. And, uh, and it made an impression, but yeah. So, you know, so Lonergan is Lonergan lived through crises of decline.
0: Uh, he lived through, he lived through the great depression, right? He watched, he watched financial, financial decline, financial collapse as well. Um, and watched government, you know, Lonergan had something of a keen mathematical. And so then later economic mind and he watched governments put policies in place to try and slow the slide that only increased it.
2: Yeah, I, I think one of the cool things that Bob Doran does in uh, Theology and the Dialectics of History, and frankly, he does a lot of cool stuff in Theology and the Dialectics of History. But oh, It's he, a long book. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's actually holding up my microphone right now because I needed, <laughs> uh, I needed something tall. Um, so it's like, I can't pull it up onto the screen, uh, but it, it's, un- let, let, the, let the listener understand, it is under my microphone. Um, he, he points out that uh, just as Lonergan is, in Insight, grappling with the sort of escalated decline that resulted from uh, the tension between uh, fascism and Stalinism in its own way. Uh, Bob, during his time writing Theology and the Dialectics of History in the late 80s, uh, points out that there's a parallel series of problems that have pushed uh, contemporary cultures to a point of crisis. Uh, and those parallel vectors are, uh, on the one hand, uh, Stalinism, so uh, Soviet totalitarianism, and on the other uh, hand, Federalism. And I think oh, that's... We, uh, we, lost, we lost that to a glitch a little bit. Go back. Oh, no. Stalinism, it,
0: it, on, Stalinism on one hand and what on the other?
2: Uh, unfettered capitalism on the other hand, which if ever there was a thing I'd like to lose to a glitch, that's a, that's a good choice. <laughs> um, we go. uh, uh, and so there's, there's a way in which because these processes are cyclical, it's not surprising that they're going to repeat themselves, but with new players sort of on the table. Um, that's, uh, the, the quote that John just pulled from method is in a certain sense, uh, a synthesis of what Lonergan does in, uh, chapter seven of insight, uh, where he, he makes a distinction between what he calls shorter cycles of decline, uh, which could be exemplified by something like a war or a famine or, uh, those, those tailspins that particular cultures can fall into, but, but pull themselves out of at least for the immediate foreseeable future. Uh, and then on the other hand, the much more insidious and, uh, Uh, well, just long, they're they're long game, longer cycles of decline, uh, which are exemplified by uh, shorter cycles that betray a root cause that's darker, uh, that's more intense, that's more insidious. Uh, The combination of group bias on the one hand and uh, general bias to Spurn sort of expert opinions to spurn theory and to spurn anything that isn't exemplary of the we of a particular group, uh, and in that combination, society sort of falls into a tailspin. So I have a quote from uh, uh, from Insight, chapter seven, where Lonergan says uh, that in uh, in opposition to the theoretical and the ability of attentiveness, intelligence, reasonableness, responsibility, and lovingness to uh, overcome present problems uh, with higher viewpoints. Uh, Common sense, on the other hand, has no use for any theoretical integration, even for the totalitarian integration of common sense practicality. It will desert the new empire for the individual or group interests that it understands. This centrifugal tendency will be augmented by the prepossessions and prejudices, the resentments and hatreds that have been accumulating over the ages. For every reform, every revolution, every lower viewpoint overstates both the case in its own favor and the case against those it would supersede. From each generation to the next, there are transmitted not only sound ideas, but also incomplete ideas, mutilated ideas, enthusiasms, passions, bitter memories, and terrifying bogeys. In this fashion, the objective social surge will be matched by a disunity of minds all warped, but each in its private way. The most difficult of enterprises will Uh, have to be undertaken under the most adverse circumstances and under the present hypothesis that the general bias of common sense remains effective, one cannot but expect the great crises that end in complete disintegration and decay, end quote. Uh, So I think the the reason I bring up Bob Doran and TDH in regard to that is uh, these problems that are exemplary of a longer cycle Uh, keep rearing their head in specific circumstances over and over. So in a certain sense, we're still dealing with the problems of the Great Depression. We're still dealing with the problems of World War II. I think we're very clearly still dealing with the problems of the Cold War. Uh, It's it's not surprising that something like racism is a pernicious long-term problem because we haven't actually identified and uh, therefore uh, subverted the root causes of those problematics. The, these are longer cycle problems. And I've talked for long enough now, so I'm going to pass it over to somebody well, else.
0: Yeah, well, one, thing, I mean, one thing to be noted about that section in, in Insight is that um, it's our, our tendency, when we hear Lonergan talk about bias, our tendency to think about bias is um, marked by a kind of broadly Foucauldian attitude which is that the problem with bias is that it arbitrarily privileges and so empowers one group and not another. Um, and that is a problem with, with bias, uh, with, with individual bias, with group bias, um, not so much with general bias, uh, the bias against, against theory, but, um, but, but there's a, we have a kind of reflex or habit of thinking about bias in those terms, about bias as the allocation of power, as, as bias as preference. And it is those things, but for Lonergan, there's a deeper issue than that, which is um, at bottom, what bias is, is the refusal of certain questions. Uh, It's the refusal to ask and answer certain questions. And and the motivation for that refusal can be my preference for myself or for my group or for uh, common sense or what have you. But the, the, the arbitrariness of the preference isn't the, isn't the central issue it's what results from the arbitrariness of that preference which is stupidity uh, in in the literal sense right and in curiosity and unwillingness to ask and answer questions to be in, to be intelligent in the way that feeds up to rationality and
3: responsibility um
1: which which is why you can have like for example kind of uh you know billionaire owners of corporations do large philanthropic Gestures and really great philanthropic gestures, and at the same time, not pay their employees properly or provide proper safety measures for their own employees and not actually see those actions as incompatible.
0: Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, right. Because, uh, because, because they're the, not
1: asking those questions. They're not even connecting right. those two things as being in the same realm of consideration.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. So, so the, the, you know there's a there's a fundamental Platonism to to Lonergan in this respect, which is that whatever is evil is also uh, is always also stupid, and so uh, and so you know what Lonergan's trying to find, insofar as he finds the principle of development to be authenticity, and the norms of authenticity are the norms of of understanding. The absence of understanding, and, and especially flight from understanding, the avoidance of understanding, is going to be the the driver. It's going to be the principle of decline, because to the extent that our actions and our our policy programs and our cooperation are are predicated on our apprehension of our concrete circumstances, um, we're going to generate stupid, stupid. Uh, Policies and stupid programs and stupid social orders and stupid cultures and um, and the pro- and the problem is is it's not just that they're stupid but because those stupidities have real consequences they're also evil uh, and and because they're evil they generate suffering and furthermore uh, that suffering is not born necessarily by the agents of the stupidity but uh, by lots of other people who. Who don't have who don't who aren't even in a position to take up moronic agency in the situation, but who are really just at the mercy of the wealthy and the powerful and and so forth.
3: Uh, which is
0: maybe an entree to another reading unless anybody would wants to intervene. That's a good entree. All right. Um, so this next one is, since I talked about authority a little bit, this is from a, a very short but very, very good essay by Lonergan that we've treated on the podcast before called The Dialectic of Authority. It's the first chapter in a third collection, which is from The Collected Works, volume 16. And it, it, he's talking
3: here about um, decline as, as being the fruit of, of inauthenticity. And so he says, the fruit of unauthenticity is decline.
0: Unauthent- unauthentic subjects get themselves unauthentic authorities. Uh, and, so for, and here authorities are um, those persons or institutions that exercise the, um, the legitimated power generated by the cooperation of the community. Uh, unauthentic authorities favor some groups over others. Favoritism breeds suspicion, distrust, dissension, opposition, hatred, violence. Community loses its common aims and begins to operate at cross purposes. It loses its common judgment so that different groups inhabit different worlds. Uh, if you've looked at the uh, Facebook posts of your aunts and uncles, you maybe have seen evidence of these different worlds. Common understanding is replaced by mutual incomprehension, and so you read the post by your uncle and you go, how can somebody believe that? How is it possible that somebody really thinks that's true enough to want to share it with everybody here in in social media land? The common field of experience is divided into hostile territories. The breakdown of community entails the breakdown of cooperation. Different groups advocate different policies, different policies entail different plans, and the different groups deploy all the resources for the implementation of the plans that accord with their policies. Sound familiar, everybody? <laughs> there may be a seesaw battle between them with the resultant incoherence and confusion, or one side may gain the upper hand and then exploitation of the other follows. Just as sustained authenticity results in increasing responsibility and order, increasing reasonableness and cohesion, increasing intelligence and objective intelligibility, increasing knowledge and mastery of the situation. So sustained unauthenticity has the opposite effects. But the remedy for the opposite effects lies beyond any normal human procedure. There is no use appealing to the sense of responsibility of irresponsible people, to the reasonableness of people that are unreasonable, to the intelligence of people that have chosen to be obtuse, who, for example, just don't like learning new things. I don't have anyone in particular in mind. Hmm. The atten- uh, to the attention of people that attend only to their grievances. Still no particular person in mind. Again, the objective situation brought about by sustained unauthenticity is not an intelligible situation. It is the product of inattention, obtuseness, unreasonableness, irresponsibility. It is an objective surge, the realization of the irrational. A natural situation yields fruits a hundredfold to the sustained application of intelligence, but an irrational situation
3: is just stony ground. And to apply intelligence to it yields nothing. I mean, that, that part I think is actually really hard to get. Um, that if, if bias is a flight from understanding uh,
0: and decline is generated by plans of action, uh, that follow from failures to understand, refusals to understand, uh, then the situation that's generated, that's realized by that course of action, is one marked with the stupidity and irrationality uh, of, the, of the understanding that generates it, uh, of the
3: ideas that generate it. Um, and so if you, you know, if you try to manage it technocratically, um, you're going to make it worse. Because you're taking as
0: the premises for your reasoning, stupidities, um, and so uh, it really is uh, frustrating, right? Because your spontaneous your spontaneous intention is to like, well, let me just figure out what's going on here, and we'll get a handle on the situation. Um, but if if part of what's making the situation so in need of your attention is that it's the realization of the irrational, boy, good luck.
1: Which is probably why it's only. Major crises that result in societal transformation.
3: Say more right? about what you mean by that.
1: Well, because. So if you think of like on a society level, right? Um, that you have that kind of such major dysfunction that is absurd that um, can't be dealt with reasonably or whatever. I think in a crisis, however, um, and I think this is true historically, right? That. Um, now, let me say this. It's true historically that major societal changes follow crises. I'm now hypothesizing about reasons. Yeah. But I think that um, until you have a crisis, a crisis, you can ignore and or rationalize away those things. You can keep trying to be reasonable with unreasonable people and think you're getting somewhere. You can keep trying or what, you know, or the fact that you're not getting anywhere doesn't make sense. It doesn't feel like it makes a significant difference. You kind of work with it, right? But when you have a crisis, I think what it does, and it's kind of that thing about if bias is a flight from understanding and you're, you stop asking those further questions, times of crises force those questions upon you. You're slapped across the face with them. And in a group setting, maybe not everyone is, but enough people, you've suddenly un, you've suddenly shocked people into insight and understanding if 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 that makes sense that that things are so bad that kind of the the lies and the the veneer and everything um have come off and and i'm not saying you necessarily get redent like get good things out of that but i think it does shock into a realization at least that things are like you know that things are unreasonable, or that right. things you know,
0: and, and the and the response right, and the the response can be uh, a renewal of um, faith, hope, and charity, and it can also be purges um, yes. of the people responsible. Yeah. And so, that's
1: why in in history, major societal changes following crises haven't always been good. They've right. been major changes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: you need something more. To get a good change as a result. But I think even the crisis itself brings about, it shocks people into those further questions in a way that kind of regular life doesn't.
0: And, but then there's, but then there's the kinds of crises like COVID 19 or like climate change, where by the time an attention grabbing, by by the time the crisis is of a proportion to our, um, as I'm gonna do something weird on this podcast. I'm going to quote Richard Dawkins. Um, you know, Expect Richard it. Dawkins talks about <laughs> he he talks, and I think this is actually a, a fairly astute observation um, that we're kind of middle sized, um, both in terms of, our, of time duration, in terms of you know, our sort of our sort of spatial extension. Um, and so, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's way bigger than us, and a whole bunch of stuff that's itty bitty and smaller than us. Uh, and the stuff that kind of hits us in the gut and that we respond spontaneously to, rather than methodically to. Is stuff that fits within that kind of band of, of time and space. And, you know, part of the problem with COVID-19 is it's got this long incubation period. And so if you take action by the time the hospitals are overwhelmed, you are deeply fucked. Yeah. Um, because transmissions already happened at a huge scale and you're going to have exponential growth um, and you're going to you know, have what's tragically happening in Italy is just people dying and dying and dying. Um, so, to climate change, right? by the time there are uh sort of dramatic um uh you know what was the name of the movie you talked about earlier brian uh the the climate change disaster movie oh uh, uh
2: day after tomorrow
0: day after tomorrow, right but by the time it looks like day after tomorrow, like the ship has sailed yeah. um the the you know if you if you aren't listening to those who are who are looking out for and addressing the the emergence of these crises. Through the methodical controls of, an, in these cases, the natural sciences, um, and if you're unwilling to hear them because it at a gut level doesn't feel like a crisis yet, mm-hmm. um, the crisis is going to is going to swamp you, uh, and there's not going to be. I, I, I like. Um, oh, I'm going to forget the guy's name. I can't remember if it's Gottwald or if it's somebody else. But there, was, in the late 70s, there was this peasant revolt theory of the origins of Israel, uh, and one of the objections that would be would be brought to it from, from certain schools of, of biblical studies and archaeology is, well, look, you're, you're talking about these biblical texts. They're supposedly about these sort of origins of the collapse of sort of the Canaanite hegemony and the emergence of this, this sort of political theological experiment of Israel. But all these texts date from way later than the events you're talking about. And Gottwald, I think it's Gotwald has this great response where he says, well, look. People don't tend to write literary works when, like, the building is burning down around them. Um, which is which is true. Um, you know, it's. I mean, we're in a weird circumstance where, like, we're recording podcasts while everything burns around us. But like, that's a unique <laughs> feature. It's
2: because we're stuck inside,
0: right? Pandemic response. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, but yeah, like when once things get really bad, the leisure required to do the kind of thinking needed to address the crisis. Adequately and not just rashly has passed. Um, well, that's
2: it's part of the reason that South Park's uh, satirical episode about uh, the day after tomorrow. Have you guys seen it?
0: No, I never the, have.
2: There's they, they have an episode, it's called Two Days Before the Day After Tomorrow, uh, <laughs> where there's a uh, I believe that's the title of it, but it's the central conceit is. Uh, there, a computer does a predictive model realizing that climate change and sort of the flashpoint crisis of it is going to happen. And they're reading out this printout from the computer and they go two days before the day after tomorrow. Oh God, it's today. And they're, <laughs> and they're, around. they're all, they're all freaking out and screaming. And it's, uh, it, it the, the biting satire of it is that you, you, you don't realize the crisis until the, the conditions for overcoming the crisis are already behind you there. Uh, except,
1: except that I do. think that if you would say you're talking about COVID-19 or something, that um, it's a crisis that actually highlights decline because mm-hmm. the exponential growth and the uncontrolled nature and the complete political bumbling isn't happening everywhere.
3: So let's talk about that. I want to read
0: another passage. This one is from, uh, Lonergan gave some lectures on education uh, that have been collected into a, a volume called Topics in Education. It's collected Works, Volume 10. It's got lots and lots of good stuff in it. Uh, but there's a passage where he talks about sin, as, uh, sin which is a, a synonym he uses for de- decline. He talks about it as a social, as a social process. In spontaneous developments, the new ideas come where they may to the man on the spot who is intelligent, sees the possibilities, and goes ahead at his own risk. But in the bureaucracy, the intelligent man ceases to be the initiator. He does not have the power, the connections, the influence to put his ideas into practice. He becomes a consultant, an expert, called in by the bureaucracy. Activity is slowed down to the pace of routine paperwork. Style and form that are inevitable when the man who has the idea is running things yield to standardization and uniformity. Wisdom and faith yield to eclecticism and syncretism. Pick the best ideas and the ideas that will suit everybody or some of those that will suit everybody. The process of mimesis, of the people who are carried on in the movement even though they did not quite understand it, changes into drudgery and routine with no understanding of what is going on. They keep on doing it because they have to live. Creativity has fewer and fewer opportunities for significant achievement. The lone individual is more and more driven onto the margin of the big process of what's really going on. The masses demand security, distraction, entertainment, pleasure, and they have a decreasing sense of shame. Uh, there is also, I'm skipping a little bit, people, there, uh, there's also esotericism. People retire into the ivory tower and they have no intention of returning to the transformation of the situation. There is archaism. People preach the revival of the ancient virtues but the ancient virtues are no longer relevant to the present situation. They were virtues once, but they are not what is needed now. There is futurism. Achieve utopia by a leap. Forget that the good is concrete. Good and evil lie in the concrete, and the real ideal, the true ideal, is the potentiality in the concrete. There are what are called times of troubles, wars to arouse social concern, to give people a stake in the nation, to give them the feeling that they belong together in one nation, There are the outer and inner barbarians growing to ever larger proportions. And finally, there is the universal state as an outward piece to cover over an inner emptiness. Sin as a component in the social process lets the material development go ahead and at
3: the same time takes out of it its soul.
2: That was... man, when I was flipping through a bunch of volumes, like I suppose metaphorically speaking, look, looking for quotes, uh, the thing that kept coming up over and over was frustration that a lot of Lonergan's decline quotes are basically uh, reiterative of what he'll say in Insight or what he'll say in Method. Uh, that might be the single best synthesis of it that, uh, that I've heard. That's, I, did, I didn't come across that one. Wow. Yeah,
0: I mean, that, the idea that um, there, are, there are people who have who are prepared for these moments? Uh, who have done the work? Who have been diligent? Uh, who have been attentive and intelligent and reasonable and responsible? Uh, and they are crying out in the wilderness. Uh, and the pe- and the people who are in a position to mobilize the ossified
3: institutions, um, dither, right? Um, they right they they just for example right they invoke
0: the governmental powers to move. Uh, industry to manufacture needed supplies, but then they don't actually use those powers to have them, them do it. Uh, because what they want is to look on television like they're in control rather than actually taking the situation in hand. Um,
2: Which, I mean, what's, what's Sorry,
3: fascinating would, would about people that, do that?
0: And, yeah, I I know, mean, That pretty, was just a hypothetical.
2: Yeah, th- <laughs> theoretically, if someone would do that, wow, that'd be bad. Uh, the, uh, and they'd dump off all their stocks before doing it. Yeah, um, the, uh, I, I think you made a really good point, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, John, about how what is evil for Loner- Lonergan would make the point that what is evil is always inherently stupid. Um, that's an asinine move in the long run for a politician to do, because what it ends up doing is, uh, regardless of how much you can insulate yourself for a short period, uh, if you happen to have enough money, your circumstances happen to be favorable enough for you, it is in the long term eventually going to screw you over, uh, which in, in insight, especially one of the things that Lonergan stresses is that uh, decline always sows the seeds for the possibility of its own reversal. Because what decline is doing is undermining decline in the long term, the biased group uh, ends up becoming sort of a snake eating its own tail because it can't possibly allow for uh the further relevant questions that would pull the group out of the situation to emerge it just it doesn't have the resources for doing it 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 is stupid the uh the response to covid-19 is not just going to kill people who disagreed with the people uh initiating those responses no that's
0: that's true but i think that also highlights the the even heavier and darker point which is um you know, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a tendency to think of the biblical language of bearing the sins of the world, again, in, in, in exclusively either sort of metaphysical uh, and particularly a kind of imagistic metaphysical sense, right? That there's a sort of u- units of sin that are sort of moved from, hmm. one, uh, from one entity to another entity um, or in uh, purely sort of penal terms, right? Uh, in, in a sort of fulfillment of the sort of demands of law. Um, but I, I mentioned in my podcast with uh, Ann Carpenter, which you should, you should go back and listen to, where we talked about Balthazar's reading of the Apocalypse of John. Um, but I, I find Balthazar there, but also Ignacio Ea correa and the crucified people uh, are asking the same question, which is, you know, where do we find the salvation of Christ crucified and resurrected at work in history? Um, and, and he goes to the, the song of the suffering servant, to the one who bears the sins of the world. And what he means by bearing the sins of the world is um, like suffering, suffering the evils of other people's sin. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
0: and that and that's something that that oppressed people uh, and people who are and even if we don't want to sort of use that set of categories, right? Those who are going to suffer for the stupidity of failed policy responses to COVID-19. Um, they're suffering for someone else's sin. Um, for, for, and it, even if you want to think of it as a sin of uh, omission rather than a sin of commission, so be it. Um, but it's sin nonetheless. Uh, and the reality is, is that all too often in history, um, those who bear the sins of, of the world uh, are not those who are the agents of that sin. And that's what's coming down the barrel at us.
1: I I want to return to this point, but the sins of omission comment just reminded me of when um, my siblings were quite young, I think maybe six and seven. Um, My youngest sibling, uh, because at church, you know, you pray about the sins of commission, sins of omission and stuff. And my youngest sibling said, well, what's a sin of omission? And my second youngest sibling, who was I think seven or eight at the time, said, oh, those are the sins you should have committed, but you didn't. (laughs) Missed
2: so opportunities. opportunities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's oh wow. That was creepy. <laughs>
1: so when I when every every time I hear sins of omission, all I think of is the sins I should have committed, but the I sins didn't. I've omitted. But to go back like, to this, that category I mean one of them doesn't exist for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I just do them all. A null set. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, oh, where do you find the time? It's just that's so time consuming. All True. of them. Um
2: All I do is sin, sin, but sin no one matter of, what.
1: One of the <laughs> wow. things that covid is really illustrative of and one as kind of like just an irrepressibly hopeful person um i see in this is that um something like covid19 and i see this and you see it in the discussions about things like social distancing which people think of as epidemiological or or public health issues not moral issues but they actually are a moral illustration of the common good yeah right that when. You, as an individual, leave your house when you're supposed to be self isolating or when you're on quarantine. Now, if you're on quarantine, you're actually also breaking the law. But if you leave the house when you're supposed to be self isolating because you just returned from travel or you had contact with someone who has COVID, um, it's not primarily yourself that you are endangering. It is everyone. And that um, I'm not you know, I'm irrepressible and hopeful, I'm not, you know, delusional, but I think that um, this is a, a really good way of illustrating that the things that we do have, have, um, have social consequences, and also that the common good cannot be achieved without individuals being committed to the common good. And I think, especially in a place like Canada, where we've had a real history of common good, right like can, can like canada's whole heritage the new yorker had a fabulous article about this a oh, few years ago about kind of the differences between canada and the u.s which um basically boiled down to most of the u.s was uh colonized by like kind of idealistic brits and canada was mostly colonized by really dour scots um who have a more just who've always had kind of a more cultural commitment to the common good and i think canada is a place where we've skated by on that for a long time, but that's changing. Um, And I think without people recognizing it, and one of my hopes for COVID is that people see in this, that actually the common good requires like that all individuals um, are devoted to the common good. Right. And that decline happens, but decline happens when some- indi- like it only takes some individuals to work against the common good for the common good to unravel.
0: Lonergan says you know in, uh, inauthenticity results from just one instance of inattention, stupidity, irrationality, irresponsibility.
1: Right, and betrayal of the common good is kind of the same
0: yeah, no, I think that's I think that's true and um, but that that takes us way too close to talking about the third differential of the good redemption. And uh, I'm just not going to give that to people today. We're not it's doing about it. about my pay grade. Uh, frankly. Uh, so, but I will say this. Let me say this because I said this on Twitter and, and I want to say it again. Um, if you are feeling like a useless lump, if you are feeling like you have no agency in this big global crisis, uh, I want to tell you that if you are, uh, as much as your circumstances allow socially distancing, you're washing your hands, you're doing all that stuff, right? If you're doing that basic, basic stuff, uh, I'm proud of you. You are doing something only you can do. And like Robin said, it's a gift you're giving to all of us. You are participating and you are contributing. Um, you are taking action, even though it feels like you're sitting on your butt on the couch or you're chasing your your two-year-old around the living room or whatever it is. Um, but like you are doing something invaluable and you are doing something that only you can do and no one can do it for you and we are grateful so um keep listening to the podcast there's more episodes coming i'm recording three more of these things in the coming three days so there's there's more pods coming um all the pods all the pods so
1: john i have i have one more thing oh yeah, yeah please i have a treasures old and new
0: oh shit Awesome. Back.
1: I know, right? Unexpected! But I just really want people to be happy.
0: Okay, so. drop them on us. Alright.
1: I'm going to make it real quick. Okay, I'm going to also go in reverse order and I actually just realized I can't show you one of the books because it's holding up my mic, but hey. Alright. Um, so for all you who are stuck at home, my treasure new is The Drunken Botanist. It's
3: I like that cover.
1: about the plants that create the world's great drinks. And you think, oh, this is only for alcoholics or, you know, for people who um, may or may not be um, failing in their Lenten commitment. Um, but it's actually this really cool book about plants that people use to make booze and to flavor booze. And um, if you're into plants, it's super awesome. And my Plant treasure- book. Plant books, because this is, that's what we need right now, guys. And my Treasure Old is also a plant book. It is called The Book of Flowers by a guy named Pierre-Joseph Reduté. And uh, it'll be in the show notes, but it is a book and he just, um, he, uh, hold on. I think I could actually, well, I mean, you guys listening can't see it. It's a this giant book. This is a
0: podcast. Yeah. yeah. Very oh, visual. Medium. I just heard it. Yeah.
1: It's a large book, Um, but it's a book and he, he uh, kind of hung out with all like, the rich French people back when they were like just, you know, the whole empire and Kings and whatever stuff, you know, but when they were building the amazing gardens like Versailles and all that sort of stuff, he went around to all those gardens and he just drew pictures of plants oh. and they're these really, really beautiful drawings of, of flowers, um, kind of like early botanical drawings, but they're also works of art. And so um, if you can find like on your online library or just whatever Redute's book of flowers. It's just really peaceful to flip through it, to see something beautiful, maybe even learn the scientific name for one of your favorite roses.
0: And Versailles, beautiful drawings of plants, no toilets.
3: <laughs> Speaking of uh,
0: absurdity, Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you, Robin. Uh, send me some, send me some, uh, bibliographic info on those, and I'll put it in the show notes when this bad boy goes up. Okay. Now, if you want to bug us on Twitter, hopefully Robin will join us. We're at Pod. If you want to send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support us, help us uh, pay for our Zoom software and uh, contribute to their increasing uh, financial stability, You can uh, donate to the show at patreon.com slash systematically. I need more coffee. I'm flagging. I need to wrap this up. Uh, Our music, as ever, track 14, goes to Nine Inch Nails. Stay in, wash your hands, stop touching your face, and be responsible.